Amen. We'll continue our study through Matthew as we turn our attention and our hearts into the scriptures of Matthew 15, beginning at verse 29 through verse 39. As we conclude this particular section in Matthew, as we've been studying it each week, I will note that the passage is much easier to read than the one I asked Keith to earlier this morning. <laughs> Uh, those names will always get you. All right, Matthew 15, beginning at verse 29. Hear the word of God. Jesus parted from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Then Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of fragments that were left, now those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into a boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Our gracious Father, open our eyes of our hearts with strong faith today and, and refresh that faith and persuade us to give us a greater confidence in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives on a daily basis and cause us to remember him this day. And to stir up all of those feelings that would be holy affections for our great God. And we pray that you, your spirit would move across and make the applications very specific to us where we need to have our hearts tuned into your praise. And we pray that you would be glorified in our time of worship now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now this passage is an often overlooked event in Jesus' life. The feeding of the 4,000 is probably one of the most lightly treated in all of Scripture. And one of the problems with our daily walk in the faith is really illustrated right before us in this miracle. Both in our own neglect as well as the relationship we have with its content. I hope to unpack that a little bit in hoping that the Spirit will work in these things to strengthen us. First of all, I want us to consider our own negligence in this passage as an illustration of a problem that is inherent within us. As we consider our daily walk of faith with God, consider why we might tend to neglect this particular miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 and to skim over it without much provocative thought into the depth of the meaning. 
And the answer to that may help us to discover something about our own faith struggle. Now, so let me ask you a question, a little workshop time here. So why do you think we give so little attention to Jesus' feeding of the 4,000? I mean, Steve didn't even bat an eye. He just went right to it. Now, because Jesus, just a chapter earlier, fed 5,000. He did this with less food, five loaves and two fish, and they had less left over at the end of, or they had more left over at the feeding of the 5,000. Here, he, he takes seven loaves and a few fish, and he has less leftovers with less people. And therein illustrates a very problem in our fallen flesh. The oversight and the neglect of this passage is rooted in a fatal weakness in all of the fallen human nature, and we share in that very thing. And that's why we tend to gloss right over it, and we tend to marginalize it, and we tend to push it aside, and yes, and we just move right on to chapter 16, because that was somewhat, that was somewhat lesser. And the problem is we get so accustomed to the greatest things, whether those greatest things happen to be great crimes on the one hand or great wonders on the other hand, we get so accustomed to those things that it takes so little time to begin, become desensitized by them. We had an opportunity to stay in the Alps right outside of Salzburg in a place uh, just over the German border. And every morning we would wake up and we would go out and we're fixing our coffee and there we are just in this valley of the beautiful Alps and we see the sunrise and, and every morning without fail we go, oh, wow. And we get in the car and we drive and we're just, wow. Around every turn, a new, wow. And it was a wow moment throughout the whole day from the sunrise to the sunset to everything in between. But I wonder what those people thought who lived there. What do they go about their day thinking about? What's going on in their minds about their surroundings? Oh, the traffic conditions today are really it's bumper to bumper, or the border crossing is a little more stringent than it used to be. I wonder what's going on, or I wonder how Brexit is going to affect us after all, or um, the issues perhaps maybe at work. Do they still see and do they still wonder about the grandness of the beauty that surrounds them every single day? Have they grown such a custom and become so desensitized to what is right in front of them? Unless we fought them too quickly, may I remind you of the very beautiful place in which we live. And we're all like that. We're all like that. We take for granted extraordinary things, and we become so accustomed to the extraordinary that we often become easily desensitized by them. And it's so like us to go through life living in 
the realm of the earthly and the common and the mundane events of the flesh and not see God in extraordinary ways working every day and all around us in all of the events. We've become desensitized often to them. Like living in the Alps only occasionally to notice the sunrise or the beauty or living in middle Tennessee in the foothills only to occasionally notice the beauty of the grandeur around us. And what we have before us is an absolutely astounding miracle. In all of human history, there have only been a a certain number of times, only about three major times where miracles were performed like this in multiples. The first time that we see this happening in multiples like this happened in a short period of around 40 years surrounding the life of Moses and the Exodus event. The second time that we see miracles like this in multiples was an era of the time of Elijah and Elisha when they ministered. And then we would have to wait over a half a millennium before we would see it again in Jesus and the apostles. And again for a short period of time. And what is the intended impact of those miracles? And first was to authenticate the message by showing the authenticity, or I should say it the other way around, to authenticate the messenger in order to authenticate the message that he brings. It was to authenticate both, but the the point was the message of God, thus saith the Lord. The Word of God. It was to engender, secondly, once we have got the message and we receive the message, seeing the very authority of the messenger, that we cannot argue against the very powerful things that are going on around us. It was intended to engender faith in the one seeing these miracles that accompanied the message. It's to strengthen our faith. It's to persuade our confidence. It is to help us once again to see Jesus is Lord and God is sovereign over all. And what we have going on in Matthew is an organic nature of all of these events that Matthew records for us. Remember, he's not recording things in a chronological order as much as he is in a theological order. And there's a purpose for how these Events are built one upon another and organically intertwined. Luke has given us more of a historical and more of a chronological detail, but not Matthew, though some of this is following a, a general chronological order. It's really theologically systematized. You have to understand that Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience about the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And the very things that you're seeing around you, Jews, are the very things that should authenticate not only His authority, but listen to His message. And as you listen to His message, you need to believe who He is and cast yourself and trust yourself entirely to Him. This Jesus was the promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of hundreds of predictions 
and he now stands before them. And Matthew has given so much evidence, so much evidence. And now here again is another miracle to persuade their confidence in Jesus. Still yet another miracle for those who are in doubt. He provides another sign still to engender faith, to persuade those who are still holding back, who haven't yet given the attention to all the things Jesus has been doing. So once again, he performs an astonishing miracle, and in this place, Matthew records it for us, a miracle of creation right before their eyes. And we tend to think, eh, <laughs> he just did the 5,000. Let's just go right on. And that illustration of how we think about this and how we view this and how we consider it and even our own posture for quickly dismissing it, sending it on its way, shows us something of a fatal weakness in our own life. We have to understand before he feeds the crowd, we have to take notice to the surrounding miracles on that particular occasion. Verses 30 and 31 tells us that people would come to him with these sicknesses. And these aren't just ordinary sicknesses. These are irremediable sicknesses. These are the cases that are impossible for the doctors to fix. These would be impossible today. They were bringing impossible cases to Jesus. People born blind. Even today, doctors have not been able to remedy that problem. People that were born cripple. They had no other hope. And one by one, he was healing every one of them. And they marveled. The great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and others, and they laid hands on uh, laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitudes marveled when they saw what he did. They wondered. And those miracles were authenticating his very authority. He had shown before that he is even the sovereign over the wind and the waves. Over nature. Over the evil forces that are strong as he casts the demons out, as he binds the strong man, as he heals those with the most difficult cases, impossible. But Jesus has never desired that people merely go away from him healed with their bodies. His interest in them, as it is with you, has always been eternal. These people will get sick again and they will die from their sickness, just like you will get sick again and you will one day die from your sickness, as it was reminded, I think, during the prayer time this morning. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Jesus' concern for you is a lot more than what your current financial situation is or the struggles that you have physically. He's concerned with you eternally.
And when people came to Jesus, they came to him with all kinds of spiritual problems. If we classify people physically in one of two particular classifications, we could classify them either well or unwell. Let's just take those particular classifications. But in the unwell category, people who are unwell can be unwell in many different ways. Well, the same is true spiritually. People can be unwell spiritually in as many different kinds of ways as they can be unwell physically. And that is why the Bible often uses the kind of language they have ears, but they hear not. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have feet that run to the paths of destruction, and they are swift to do evil. And so he uses these physical metaphors and all of the various sickness and unwellness of their physical to relate to something that is spiritually true of the various kinds of spiritual problems people have. Some of those people that came to Jesus on that day with all kinds of physical infirmities, some of those people were, were angry. Some of those people were bitter. These people had relational problems. These people were critical and disillusioned and distressed and depressed and had worries and anxieties and fears. They were unhappy. And they were sinners. And Jesus would heal them. To some, He would say, your faith has made you well. To others, He would heal them. And their faith still may be highly questionable. He would heal, and some would not even believe. He would do good things to those who may not ever see Him. And on the previous miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, did He not say to those who came to Him the next day, you don't seek Me now. You seek the bread. You seek the food. You're not really seeing what's behind it. And that's what he's primarily interested in. It's what he's interested in with you. He's interested in me. And that is our faith. Because our faith has to do with our eternal care. Now think about Jesus taking a few minutes with each of these people, the vast crowd of them, and giving them the relief that they were seeking. Think about the radical nature of what that would imply in their lives and how in a turn of events now, for the first time they can see or walk, and what that would mean in their lives. And here, Matthew is showing one more time this incredible, astounding, supernatural work of God in their midst to persuade their confidence in Jesus one more time. There's a thing about the feeding of the 5,000 that's not quite so obvious. 
But it is very much in line with Matthew's purpose and why he places it where he does here. Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. But where he's going to end this gospel in the very end is he's going to show that Jesus was not only the Jews' Messiah, but Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, and therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. Jews and Gentiles and every one of those who are sitting in the seat at Heritage Church. Jesus is your Lord. And He wants to instill your confidence. He wants you to be persuaded once again that He is the Lord over all of your life. And Matthew and everything about it is there to build this confidence that this Jesus is the promised Messiah. He has come, and His kingdom has come with Him, and His kingdom is now set upon the earth, and all authority has been given to Him, and now you, you, be confident in Him. This particular miracle comes in a very subtle way as kind of a, a, a the last miracle that Capstone's a cluster of miracles, and we might recall what the Lord has previously done. He, remember earlier, he previously broke with the tradition of the Pharisees in the ritual cleansing that they went through. And right after he broke with the ritual of the Pharisees in the ritual that they went through, and they sent people from Jerusalem to come even ask him this important question, the very next thing that we're seeing him do is he's meeting with a Canaanite woman, miraculously healing her daughter up in Gentile territory. And we see the same sequence in Acts when Peter was having this dream vision that God was giving him of a sheet that comes down, and Jesus says, Peter, I want you to break with your Jewish tradition now. And the next thing you know, we see a knock on his door from the Gentile world who wants the gospel. See, this is where Matthew's going with this entire gospel. He's been a little more subtle here, probably due to his Jewish audience. But we can see a great progression here, and I think you'll see why the feeding of the 4,000 is here in the last cluster of these Miracles in chapter 14 and 15. Mark's gospel was primarily written to the Gentiles. And he gives us a bit of information that Matthew doesn't give us here. He tells us that where these events took place, and it says in Matthew, Mark, we won't turn over there, but he reports that Jesus went to the region of Decapolis. Now here it tells us of the territory, Jesus departed from there and skirted the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain. That's about all he says about it, but Mark tells us that he skirted the Sea of Galilee, he went into the region of Decapolis. Decapolis is... Literally, it means the ten cities. And it was a region of where these ten cities were found, modern-day Jordan. These were the Jordanians. And these ten cities were primarily Gentile, largely a Gentile area. 
Just like we saw him up in Tyre and Sidon, outside of the realm of Israel boundaries, he is now over in this largely Gentile area. And the only hint we have here, what Matthew is trying to maybe imply, but we have it in verse 31 when he tells us, and they glorified the God of Israel. See? A Jew would have expected Matthew to say, and they glorified our God, the Lord Yahweh. They glorified the God of Israel to these people. And what we're supposed to notice in all this, this is the same miracle that Jesus performed to the Jews in the feeding of the 5,000. And He sat them down and He fed the Jews. And they get food. And here, it's the same miracle. It's the same food. But now it's to the Gentiles. And for the Jew, that is an astounding thing. That would have been shocking. And there's very deliberateness to this miracle. It's not merely like the previous one. It's not literally just to be marginalized and, oh, the other one was bigger, now we've got a lesser one. Not at all. It has its own astounding characteristics. It was a miracle done on a massive scale to Gentilian people. Is Gentilian a word? Gentile people. The word now in my vocabulary. This would have been extraordinary. Extraordinary. But there it is. It's anything but mundane. And we should not marginalize it in the least. Well, there's another element found in the text itself that, again, identifies with our human fallenness and our frailty that we become so desensitized to the astounding works of God and I think we need to acknowledge it. These people have been following Jesus for three days. And Jesus plans to feed them just like he's done before. And he calls his disciples to himself in verse 32. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and he says, I have compassion on this multitude because they have now continued with me for three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? What's the first thing you think of when you read that? What? Yeah. What were they thinking? He just showed them Feeding of the fight. We're re- we rehearse the same event over again. They knew what little there was among them. They were easily able to say, well, you know, we've got here seven loaves and a few fish. And we simply think to ourselves, what's up? Why did they so quickly forget? And why did they not understand what he's done before? And before you indict them so quickly, you are just like that. Don't be so hard on them. You are just like that. Over and over in Scripture, we see that 
of God's people. And over and over in your life, it happens to you. We are so easily desensitized. We cease to be impacted by the things that Jesus has done for us before. And we are of such a weak nature that we so easily forget and we think about God in our own human terms and we lose the impact and we degenerate back into unbelief and undoubt. And undoubt. I, we could just go around and I could ask a couple of questions that maybe prompt some things in your own personal life. But have you ever experienced a very challenging financial situation? Let's just take finances for a moment. Jesus used that as one of the largest most common illustrations, because he knows that where our treasure is, there our heart will also be. Have you ever experienced a very challenging financial situation in your life? I mean, it was just, you were up against the ropes. You were up hard against the situation. You had no idea. What you did know is you didn't know what to do about it. You couldn't do anything about it. And all of a sudden, God comes through in an unbelievable way. You ever been in a case like that? You've been several times in cases like that? <laughs> Whatever the analogy may be in your life, whether it be health or a, a challenge with your relationship of some sort, or whatever it is, God came through in a wonderful, absolutely astounding way in your life And the next time, not long after that, you came into a financial struggle again. You went right back into the doubt and despair and unbelief. And you grow concerned and worry if God is going to provide again. And you just forget. It's a major sinful weakness every single human has. We forget what God has done for us in the past to the extent that those situations where He has acted and has showed Himself in incredible ways loses its impact in our lives for today. We can recall the story so it's not completely forgotten from memory, but it has lost its impact and we also tend to forget how sinful we really are. How, how much doubt we actually have. How, what, what doubters we are. What complainers we are. What presumptuous people we are. What unthankful people we are. As soon as God takes the pressure off, He answers our prayer. We tend to not trust Him and depend upon Him like we should, and we tend to forget about seeing Him throughout the day when we're on the mountaintop, and we tend to forget those things, and we stop praying like we should, and, and we become so desensitized to our own sinfulness that we become so desensitized to His active, present work in our lives every single day that these things are not astounding anymore. And we've lost the impact of who God is, what He is doing for us in life, and how He's showing Himself throughout all of our lives in history. 
We tend to view God through our own human perspective. We don't tend, we don't depend upon Him. We depend on ourselves too much, and we begin to doubt Him once again. And just like the disciples, well, Lord, are you going to feed all these people out in the wilderness? The next time you read this passage, you find the specific application where you ask Jesus the very same thing when you're up against the ropes and you're questioning how he's going to do it again. He did it before. But will he do it again? Will he do it again? Time after time after time after time after time. Psalmist David says, you know, I have been young and I've been old. And now he's speaking from an aged place of his life. And he says, but I have not seen the righteous go hungry or begging bread. And I know each of us have had financial difficulties in our lives, but that's not primarily what God's concerned about. It's not that he's unconcerned. He's concerned with you eternally. And there's something far greater that he wants out of you. And to simply fill your stomach. Or provide what you think of at the very moment in that time in your life as your greatest need. But it's not. Your soul, your well-being is your greatest need. Your relationship with God in Christ Jesus. Your confidence in Him. Your entire trust in Him in every part of your life is your greatest need. And there's no reason to doubt that He's going to come through again. I have never personally met a Christian that has died from starvation. Never met him. Never read about him. And never heard about him. Now there are occasions when God allows his people to go through certain kinds of unusual trials for his name's sake. And there may be exceptions to that rule. I personally have never met that exception. It is a rule that God will take care of his people. He'll provide for them no matter what the situation is. Financial, food, shelter, clothing, with all of these things, God is not so much concerned. He is concerned that you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in your life and holiness and peace you pursue. And if you get those priorities right, he's going to take care of it. But we see these cycles over and over again, just like the disciples are showing us in very short order, but Jesus, how are you going to do it? But then I want you to notice with me how the Lord feels about this situation. Now Jesus called his disciples in verse 32, and he said to his disciples, he, he rallies the disciples around him, and he says, no, disciples. Now Peter and Andrew and James and John... Bartholomew, I want you to listen to me. I want you to know how I feel right now about these people. I have compassion on them. I have compassion on them. I find that actually astounding. 
What explains the compassion that our Lord had on these people? Was it because all these people were really intent on changing their lives? And because they were so intent on changing their lives that that is why Jesus had compassion on them? Jesus' compassion was not a result of the people turning to Him in faith, but rather the people turning to Him in faith was a result of His compassion for those who did. When we consider the feelings of Jesus here, there's more biblical reference to this feeling of our Lord than any other kind of feeling that is expounded in the Word of God. We read of Jesus' joy. We read of His sorrow. We read of His anger. But more than any other feeling, this feeling of compassion, delineated over eight times in the New Testament, is the one that is the one that's mostly seen, revealed, compassion. And this is the only passage that he personally says, I have compassion on this people. And most of them were not his followers. Now, we need to never doubt our Lord's feelings in situations like this. We never need to doubt his feelings for people who draw near unto him. He has compassion. He has compassion. You know, his compassions, they fail not. His feelings never fail. What God has done for you before, he can and will do for you again. He is always compassionate. The last time you were in the same kind of situation, He's going to provide for you again. He might do it exactly the same way. He might do it a different way. It doesn't matter how He's going to do it. The thing is, He loves you and is compassionate and He will provide. Do you believe that? That's the question. Or will you easily forget it and degenerate back into those old fleshy feelings of doubt Discouragement once again. David would say, the Lord who delivered me, past tense, will deliver me, future tense. The Lord who delivered me will deliver me. What he did before, he will do again. Now I want to take some time and just make this passage very personal this morning. I want you, first of all, to know that Jesus has compassion for you. Your God has feelings for you, particularly, personally, and specifically. Your Jesus is compassionate for you. The Lord feeds you and sustains you every day of your life. And frankly, he does it in a supernatural way. Never take for a moment that your life is mundane. Be alert to the things around you and how God is working and not 
become so easily desensitized to the astounding things that our Lord is doing. Never compare one act of God with another act of God and marginalize what is the seemingly lesser in light of the seemingly greater. Don't do that with the works of God. The little works that He does that go unnoticed day in and day out, the protections He gives, the provisions that He provides, and all of those things are not to be marginalized as something lesser for which you don't have to give thanks for, or something that you presume upon. God doesn't owe you any of it. Don't look at things with your physical eyes, but rather in the spiritual reality that God has given you by faith. Never marginalize the very daily work of God in your lives or on a daily basis become desensitized to the things that God has done before, even yesterday, so that then you come to a a new roadblock and that you say, oh no, how is the Lord going to feed the 4,000 in my life today? Your life is not mundane. It is not common. It never is with God. Your salvation took a supernatural act of God working in you to give you a new life and to regenerate you by the power of the Holy Spirit. The very power that raised Christ from the dead was the same power that took you dead in your trespass and sin and changed you radically. And if He so cared for you in that most important way, He's going to take care of you in all of the lesser ways. You can trust Him with your eternity. Can you not trust Him with today? Just realize your life is not mundane. Our Lord's compassions, they fail not. He is compassionate with you. He he has feelings for you feeling of love and compassion. If you become desensitized to the supernatural work of God in your lives, you're going to have doubts. And if you have doubts, it's because you've become desensitized to those works of God in your life. You can't have strong faith and become desensitized to these things. What happens, we often marginalize God in the midst of all the happenings of life, our daily walk by faith, when we end up giving way to walking by sight, we end up giving way to things that will breed fear and turmoil and chaos and worry and anxieties and all kinds of struggles in life that may be common for those in the world, but they should not be characteristic for those who are Christ's. Not characteristic. Yeah, we'll go through them. They should not be that which attributes to you. Don't take the beauty that is all around you for granted. Don't take the unseasonable warmth of this, this cold December, which has been beautiful, for granted. Don't see a sunset for the beauty in itself, but for the artist who created it and for the eyes that he's given you to see it and for the very special occasion that he has invited you to enjoy it right now for his glory. Don't take that for granted. That is not mundane. Little things all around us every day are really not little 
at all. They're astounding works of God, just like the feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew's audience was astounding. So don't see this miracle as something of less than really what it was. Don't compare it to the 5,000 and say, well, let's move on along with, without any further ado. And don't do that with your life on a single passing day. Matthew has this miracle to yet still and still and persuade his readers that Jesus is the Messiah. And every day He is alive in your life. He is the sovereign Lord over all of life and all things in heaven, all things on the earth, and every detail of every minute and second of your being. He is your Savior. He is your God. He is your provider. And He has great compassion for you. Emotive feelings for you. Emotive feelings that will move him to action in his will for you. And this is true of all of our life, that these people are not asking Jesus to feed them, and they had gone three days without food, but they came for one thing, and Jesus gave them more. And it's so true that when we draw near unto God, He gives us so much more than we can ask or think. And as he was persuading not only his Jewish audience and doing the supernatural works to a mass of Gentiles, he's doing that not only to persuade the Jews, but he's doing that to persuade the Gentiles. And that's what his desire is for you. He wants to persuade you once again. These things are not mundane. Though we do not live in a time where miracles and the multiples have happened in this kind of occasion, do not think for a moment that God is not supernaturally working in every event and every part of your life. Supernaturally sustaining you, for in Christ we live and move and have our being. Supernaturally upholding you every single day of your, of your life supernaturally acting in providence and guiding your feet in the direction that He would desire of you, even though you are not seeking it. Supernaturally providing food for you and protection for you, even when you haven't asked for it. God is not a mundane God. And you should never marginalize His works daily in your life or become desensitized to the astounding nature of them as you live, because He has compassion for you. He seeks you in order to persuade you to trust Him today that He is God and He is your Savior. He is the Messiah that was promised. Jesus is not an abstract force. He is a person who loves you deeply. So don't neglect to see Him at work. Don't doubt His provision for you. He is not only concerned with your physical well-being, but He is even more concerned about your eternal. And that's just as astounding, if not even more, than providing for you physically. And He is fast at work, behind the scenes, interceding at the Father's right hand against all those wicked accusations that the evil one seeks against you. 
So remember Him with freshness every day of your life. And let those psalms in the morning and those psalms in the evening continue to drive us to Jesus and to show He is the coming Messiah. He is living. He has come. He has defeated the forces of darkness. He has died upon the cross. He has been raised from the dead. And your life is hidden with Him and God. And when He comes back, you shall appear with Him in glory. Remember Him freshness with freshness every day. And look out for His work daily in your lives. And stop being so selfish and self-centered and so self-focused and so visually oriented that you forget who He is. Because we all have this weakness in our fallen flesh to be just like the disciples. Lord, how are you going to feed those 4,000? Let us not be like them in that way. Well, we are, and we will be again, but let us be reminded that Jesus, what he did before, he will do it again. Our gracious Father, we do ask that you would be merciful to us. We are a forgetful people. We are a forgetful people. We do not realize how sinful we truly are. We see ourselves all too righteous. We do not consider our waywardness. We present ourselves in way too high of a profile. We, we think too highly. And so we do not depend or trust enough in our Savior. We're worried about our image or what people think about us or how we're going to put food on the table or how we're going to be clothed for the day and what people will think of us. Oh God, be merciful and forgive us of all these sins. Heal our sinfulness and these spiritual diseases of their various sorts in our own souls. And care for us eternally this day. And repair us where we are broken. And restore us where we have fallen. And forgive us where we have sinned. And heal us where we've been sick. And cause us to trust in you with all the affection worthy of a God who has compassion on us particularly. Lord, may we love you more. And may we be more joyful in your joy. And may we have our Lord Jesus to be our great confidence and persuaded each day of our lives that He is Lord. He is Messiah. He is God. And He is our God. We thank You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.